Hey everybody, Todd Mitchell here. Welcome back to Game Dev Breakdown. We are talking to Richard Rouse III in this episode. He is a game designer, and if you are not familiar already, I know you know some of his projects, which uh, we'll be talking about in just one moment. He's also the author of Game Design Theory and Practice, which is a fantastic book on that topic. If you're interested in design things, and uh, really if you work in games at all, you need to hear this one. So here's my chat with Richard. Good evening, fans. Tim Kitzrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Whoa, boom shakalaka. My mom gave birth in 1985. I was within a Pac-Man ghost, barely alive. In the Cold War, my only blanket was Tetris. I played Rampart with Reagan Rampage, the world for breakfast. The laundry mat was my sanctuary. The arcade was my church. I thought I was rest. Cool. Let's dig in. Let's start by having you just go over a little bit of your, uh, your career, your major projects, things like that. Yeah, so... Uh... I've been doing this for a little while. I guess maybe I'll start with the present and go backwards a little bit. Sure. We just shipped The Church in the Darkness, which is uh, my sort of indie game, uh, experimental narrative game set inside a religious cult in the 1970s, which you, the player, are infiltrating, trying to find your nephew. Um, and before that, I worked at a bunch of AAA places, including Microsoft, where I worked on games like State of Decay and um, Sunset Overdrive and Quantum Break for a little bit. And before that, like Ubisoft Montreal. Um, and going back farther, people most often when they hit me up on Twitter or something are asking about the suffering horror games I did right. back in the PS2 original Xbox generation um, back when I was at Surreal Software. And those were published by, by Midway. Uh, and going all the way back to the very beginning, I started out <laughs> in Mac gaming journalism uh, briefly, and that led into the first few games I did, which were originally for the Macintosh back in the late 90s. Very cool. So you're you're one of these guys, like you're, you're a well-known designer, but you are multi-talented. You, you must do development as well, right? Yeah, well, I when I refer to development, I, I like to say everyone on the team is a developer, uh, but I think you mean programming. Fair uh, enough, in, yeah. <laughs> in, my, in my lingo. It's interesting. As you go to different companies, these things have different names. Certainly at Microsoft, when you say developer, you mean a programmer. True. But uh, uh, for me, yeah, I've done um, like on the Church in the Darkness. Most recently, I was the primary programmer. Um, there were two other guys who worked on some more technical stuff, but I did most of the gameplay, almost all of the gameplay programming. Um, and then I've also done on most projects, I've done some mix of design and narrative. So it's been, um, you know, coming up with the systems, but then also what sort of story are we trying to tell with the systems or, you know, with the scripted content or whatever it is. I've also done level design, uh, and sort of project management stuff, producing stuff. Uh, I don't do art <laughs> and, Fair uh, I have done audio design, but not that well, I would say. So it's not something I can do, but I don't think I'm like professional quality at, at audio design, but, uh, yeah, I try I try to do a lot of the other stuff uh, and I kind of enjoy mixing up what I'm doing a little bit, though I also have enjoyed being on big projects where I was more focused on one thing or another. Yeah, so it seems to me that if you look at the big enough picture, you you sort of went from indie to AAA to indie, and I I assume you're not done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, who knows what will be next exactly, but um um yeah, I mean, it, it's been uh starting out was really 
Um, it was funny. The very first company I worked for were fellow students at the University of Chicago who had started a game company and had released one game called Minotaur, which was like a, a lab, a 2D labyrinth exploration game that was multiplayer. That was very cool. And I wanted to work for them because they had put a game out and they were just two guys at the time. And so then I worked on a game for them that they had uh, started, but then stopped working on. And as they got bigger, I ended up publishing it with somebody else. But that company was Bungie Software long, long ago. You know, they obviously kind of went from we didn't call it indie back then. Sure. Um, but it essentially was the same thing, you know, working, you know, largely by yourself, but with some contractors and things doing other parts of the game was how I started. And that's how I just did the project uh, that the, the Church in the Darkness that I shipped as well. But again, there is a lot to be said for certainly I have good memories of working on a lot of other projects like the, like the suffering or um, State of Decay or whatever. And that's just a question of. A very different dynamic because often when you're a designer in one of those projects, you spend a lot of time just discussing things and negotiating things with other departments and figuring out, you know, as a team what the best thing to do is. Whereas when you're small indie dev, obviously you're having those conversations with yourself mostly. Yeah, for, for the most part. Yeah. So you mentioned you of Chicago. Are you from the Chicago area? No, I'm originally from uh, East Coast, uh, Massachusetts, actually. Okay, I got you. I should I really should have picked that up from uh, what I've read about the development of the suffering. I should have known that was a little more close to home than that, you know. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess it is an East Coast game. But it was developed in Seattle, so. <laughs> <laughs> true. Um, okay, so you uh, relocate to U of Chicago to do school. Um, what did you go to school for? It was, uh, it was, there was no computer science degree at the University of Chicago at the time. So I mm -hmm. was getting an applied math degree, but essentially computer science. Okay. That's pretty cool. But I also took, you know, film classes when I was there it was probably the, some of the more fun classes I got to take. And University of Chicago is a very sort of classical liberal arts education. So it was spread over a lot of departments though. I, my concentration was, uh, in, in math and computer science. Right. And, and in your design work, it's easy to pick up that you are a film guy. I mean, is that fair? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I feel like games and film are very different and sometimes they are combined in bad ways, but uh, I definitely love film as its own thing. You've got the, the church in the darkness is out. How's it doing? Are people enjoying it? People uh, get in touch about it. Yeah, no, uh, that's, you know, one of the best things about shipping is seeing how people react to it. And there's definitely people who love it. And there's definitely people who thought it was going to be different than it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you always get, I think no matter what you do, there's always a, I had no idea this was a game with guns in it or something, even though you've put out, you know, reams of gameplay footage and stuff that show that it's something that it's easy for people to sometimes see only your trailer or something like that and then imagine what game it is. And then when they get there and it's a different game, um, they can be pretty surprised. Certainly when I would pitch the game, sometimes people would say, oh, I assume this was going to be like Uncharted or something. But it's actually more like old top down Metal Gear. Um, so that sort of throws people for a loop a little bit sometimes. Um, and also some people hearing, you know, about the narrative focus of the game thought there would be more complex conversation system or you know we do have a conversation system but it's a pretty simple one because the game is really more about environmental storytelling um and sort of being inside this this camp that lives a certain way but so you know it's everybody wants something different from games and when you're making something pretty unique and more experimental like this is and this is a game that's designed to be replayed a few times 
Um, so people are like, oh, I got to an ending, but it, you know, it was only two hours or whatever. Um, that can be surprising to people as well, even though I'm like, well, keep playing. You have, you only seen this little slice of what's in there at that point. So, um, they would try to do a lot of different things and that's always, uh, challenging to communicate all of that to people who check out the game. And, uh, part of what makes this game so replayable is that there is a system of basically procedurally changed content each time, or, uh, how would you describe that? Yeah, I call it dynamic storytelling so it's both reacts to what the player does which is not that uncommon in a lot of games like rpgs or um you know even immersive sins and things that'll have like oh the player made these choices so we're going to change things like this either on a gameplay level or a narrative level or both so we do that but then we also change sort of the starting state of the story each time so there's several states that can start in where certain personalities change among the cult leaders and you're trying to figure out, am I dealing with nefarious, like apocalyptic doomsday people, or am I dealing with people who really mean what they say and are trying to live just in a different way than the rest of society? And, and are they, so it's basically you're trying to decide how crazy they are. And then that determines what sort of thing you should try to do for the different endings you can get. Very cool. Do you consider uh, the suffering to be sort of a catalyst for, that kind of system, because I know I know there's a, a branching narrative system there as well. Yeah, no, it's something I have tried to do in every game. Um, my very first game was called Odyssey, was an Ultima Four style RPG, was same similar top down, uh, simpler graphics and stuff than you know the the games that would come out a few years later. But it had you know you're basically put in this world, and you could kill any character at any time, and that led to all these branches of you having to make what you might call moral choices about what's the right thing to do with this town of people that have this problem. I could kill this person or I could help that person. And that would lead to a lot of different possibilities for what the outcome would be. And then that led to different endings and stuff like that. So going back to the very first game, that's something I've always wanted to do. It's just sort of the reason I, I got in almost was I thought games or an interesting place to explore difficult choices for, and you know, to have the player explore them by being able to make both of them and not just being told, well, this is the good one. This is the bad one. Which did you pick? It's more like, here's, here's something harder to understand than that. There are multiple right answers, multiple wrong answers. What do you think? So yeah, going all the way back and then the suffering, uh, had the mechanic of, yes, you could make choices that would lead to affect the ending, but then it also affected the player's past because the player had amnesia, at the beginning and couldn't remember if they were guilty of the crime they were sent to prison for. So we were both, we were both changing the future and changing the past in a way though. Fictionally, the past is always the same. It's just, you're revealing what type of person are reveals, whether you were in jail for the right reasons or whether you were set up. So yeah, definitely something I've, I've tried to do in, in lots of games uh, and something I look for in the games I enjoy most. It does seem like you're one of the people pushing the envelope in this area. And and tell me if you think I'm I'm off base here, but it seems like there's an important distinction between whether you want to call them designers, game creators, developers, but people who look at the experience they're creating versus the, I guess, the gameplay. You know what I mean? Like, what's the experience we're designing versus, like, I would like to make a game with guns where you shoot at the following? <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
it's it's perfectly fine to make games purely for you know if you just I just want to make a cool badass shooter right mm-hmm. and I'm gonna do that with this and this and this and and I don't re- that's really the end of my <laughs> that's that's all I'm that's all my goal is I think that's fine those games can be fun um, you know when you look at a classic like Tetris or something obviously it isn't like you can interpret you can if you can, you can read academic papers that have interpreted it to mean different things but. I suspect it really was just about that pure mechanic. But then, you know, we also see games that that take those pure mechanics and then go to a bigger narrative place or challenge expectations just with how the gameplay works or whatever. Um, You know, like even going back to Civilization or something like that, that has a lot of ways that you can finish that game, you know repercussions to you know how you do diplomacy and and all of those you know this wide open space of of choices that are consequences and often people don't think of that as a narrative game particularly but it kind of is right because it's telling a story set in a world that's very recognizable and and that you think oh i want to win the space race or oh i want to just conquer everyone like that's a story you're creating right even though it isn't through cutscenes and stuff like that yeah and, and the people who are sort of not finding what they expected with the uh, current game, The Church in the Darkness, I mean, do you find that this has changed for you over time? I mean, you've had a, a long enough career now that you've seen feedback for a lot of games. And I mean, do you think we're getting to a point where people are, uh, their expectations are sort of driving them different directions and it's kind of hard to know what to anticipate on your end? Yeah, I think I think it's always been like that, to be honest, that people would get, you know, it's it's tough. I think it's tougher in games than it is in other mediums because there's so many things to react to. Like if you're trying to decide what movie to go see, okay, you're going to go see you know, a horror or a comedy or an action movie, whatever. You kind of know it's still going to be a movie, you know, and the way yeah. you're going to experience it is you're going to sit in your chair and images are going to come at you. Right. And you're not going to have to do anything. Uh, whereas a game, you know, you pick up a game because you like the set. And usually when you're picking a movie, you might be picking it just based on the setting or something or the, you know, the cool characters or an actor you like or something like that. Right. Uh, when you're picking a game, you're like, oh, you know, I'm really interested in cults. I'd love to find out about this. Oh, wow. I'm really bad at stealth games. Bummer. You know, <laughs> and you can then that leads to sort of a frustration or you say, oh, I really like stealth games. Oh, but this one is not as complex as this other stealth game I did. It had way more stuff in it. Um, and often, you know, that game might have had a much bigger budget or something like yeah. that, right? So you're you're left – you'd kind of – it's harder for gamers to know what they're getting um, ahead of time compared to, you know, consumers of anything else. So I, I'm sympathetic to people who show up and are like, oh, this is really not what I was expecting. I can't finish it now you know it's like a movie you always finish it or a book you always finish or whatever but if the game is not you know people don't finish games as much as they finish anything else because it's you have to do stuff to get through it right and that may be impossible which means for you because you don't have the time or you don't have the skills or you you know don't have the whatever it is it's just not your type of thing and that's that's fine but it can be tricky and that's why you know genres exist where you know if you get a first person shooter you kind of know what you're getting and it's you know increases the chance it's going to be something you want if you're used to that type of thing but you know when you try to do something experimental and different from that it just makes it more likely that someone might bounce off it and literally can't can't get to the end or whatever yeah i I think that's fair and to, to be fair also i think we're throwing a lot wider range of experience at players now with the rise of indie development and uh, mm-hmm. more experimental uh, things that didn't have to be, you know, greenlit by anyone special. You know, sometimes you, you show up and uh, and you don't find what you thought you were going to. And uh, the point about finishing games 
I'm guilty of that as well. Like I start a ton of games because I want to, I want to play as many as I can, uh, sort of see where the industry is going, see what my friends are doing, things like that. And I don't finish nearly as many as I used to. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, usually, usually as you get older too, you have more money and less time. Whereas, you right. know, when you're younger, you have less, less money and more time. So you tend to finish things. And certainly, yeah, it's certainly true of me as well. You know, there are a few that I get really into and I end up finishing, but often, you know, the fun of a game is the play. And, you know, just like if you buy Monopoly or something like that, you never like finish it. You finish <laughs> a session maybe, but often you, you don't finish those because in the case of Monopoly, you know, you get frustrated at some point that someone's way ahead and everyone else is done and you've been playing for six hours and you've got to clear the table for dinner so that, you know, the board game can't be there anymore. So that happens too. And it's not to say, oh, that was a failure that you didn't finish that game of Monopoly. It's like, no, you had a good time while you were playing it and then you got to a point where you had to stop. So you stopped and, you know, next time you'll start a new game where everyone's starting on an even foot um and certainly and i feel like yeah with you know when you are older have more money to buy games you play it for a while and you have a great time for those three four hours or whatever and you don't get to see everything but, but that's that's fine uh and it's something i always emphasize in terms of storytelling in games i think the characters and the setting are most important and the plot is secondary to those because so many people will experience your game without getting to the end. Mm -hmm. um, even even for games that, you know, if you look at the stats on how many people finish very story focused games, like, say, The Walking Dead, their stats on, um, you know, still it's like half, <laughs> you yeah, know, half, yeah. half will never get to the end of season one of The Walking Dead uh, who started. Uh, maybe maybe 60 percent is pretty good, but usually not more than that. So what about the other 40 percent? And if your entire enjoyment of the story is tied to the plot. Most people won't get to the end of the plot, so you better have made it fun along the way, you know, for the people who, you know, the other 40% who don't finish. It's true. Um, you, you mentioned board games, and I got to thinking about how important it is to me to see that number on the back that says, like, average playtime, you know, the expectation oh, right. of what mm -hmm. minutes or hours or whatever it is. And I think you never think about that as a kid, but now it's the most important thing. Like, <laughs> right. If, right. If a yeah, game says like, like three hours to play, I, I probably won't even try it. And and it got me thinking, like, what if we did that with video games? That'd be a disaster, yeah. probably, because <laughs> I don't know if anybody would be happy. <laughs> you've got that website, How Long to Beat. I don't know if you've seen that. I guess I have. Um, yeah, I have heard of that. That's true. But it's basically community driven. People put in how long it took them. And that's, that can be very useful. Um, I don't use it because, you know, if I see a game that looks really interesting, I mean, I'm pretty picky in the first place, so I don't. Yeah. I'm not like uh, I've seen a lot of games that come out. I'm like, yeah, I think I've played this before, uh, you know, in some other incarnation. But when something really grabs me, I, I'm happy to get the three, four hours of it um, that I'm likely to manage to play instead of the, you know, 10, 20, whatever it, it has in total. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's not a decision for me. But I understand someone who might have less money or something or younger or whatever and wants to spend their money carefully and wants to make sure they can get enough out of something before picking it up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what do you like to play these days when you get the opportunity? You know, I uh, while developing this, you know, the the amount of time I had to to spend with with games went way down. Um, you know, I, I since we shipped, I've recently been playing some uh, Destiny Two, nice. uh, which I hadn't played since it came out. So I'm getting caught up with that. I've always liked, and I, you know, much as I like challenging narrative things i also like a good shooter a lot so that's a good one or i've enjoyed the far cry series quite a bit um 
I liked Hitman as well, which is one of the inspirations for this game, though obviously that's a big AAA game and this is simpler than that. You know, in terms of indie games that have grabbed me, I've been, I have a big list to catch up on. Um, I'm hoping to place the last right now, which mm-hmm. is not exactly brand new anymore, but uh, in the last few years, um, I have that. And things that inspired this game were like uh, Sunless Seas was a big one. I still haven't played Sunless Skies, so that would be cool to check up on. Uh, or like Papers, Please was another big one that was inspirational. So I haven't played his next game either, the Re- Re- Return of the Obra Dinn or Revenge of the Obra Dinn. I can't remember which right. one it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd love, to, I'd love to check that out when I get some time. But right now... Destiny's taking up enough of my time. So <laughs> in addition to in addition to continuing to work on a hundred things. So exactly. I'm a little that way too. Like if I'm working on a project and I'm really in the thick of it, for one thing, I tend to play things that are very different from anything I'm doing. Um, mm, yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I think to some degree that's good for you. Of course, you know, research is good, quote unquote research playing other games. But <laughs> I I'm a, a big believer in uh just pointing your brain a complete opposite direction and uh you know racing cars for for a while instead of working on a yeah. <laughs> adventure game of some kind something like that and i tend to go even a step farther and you know read a book or something like that you know so that it's even more away from games just to have that not feel like every minute of my day is is doing games because there's certainly game developers who are very obsessive about playing every game that comes out and and uh in addition to developing them and that's fine. But for me, I just need to experience other things or like go for a, go to the beach or something like that. Um, yeah, just to, just to clear, clear the mind and experience different things. I mean, I, I think, and, and I'm, I'm always a big supporter of, uh, people who still play games as, as they create them for sure. But there's been a, a big sort of movement to, find people who are just, you know, very well-rounded outside of games, people who have interests and things. And it it makes a lot of sense to me because, I mean, you do have to pick up life experiences to create experiences in a game. (laughs) So I I think that's been, there've been a few interviews with uh, people at Nintendo who talk about the sort of people they like to hire and things like that. So I I think it's an important thing for folks who want to break into the game industry to keep in mind, like, do not be scared to talk about, you know, you also like gardening or running or, you know? Yeah, no. And I've, I've asked that in interviews when I was interviewing people at different times of like, what else do you like to do? And I'm not looking for any one answer. I'm just looking for a answer (laughs) that is, you know, other than game stuff. And, and that's, you know, to be fair, there are people who really, really, really like games and, and that is the focus and they can be great team members too. But when you're looking to have diversity of thought and opinion on a team, you don't want everybody to be that way. Right. Spot on. Yeah. So clearly a big uh, movie guy. Also, sounds like you're a big reader. Um, I mean, have you ever really thought about you're, you're clearly a very capable writer and creator? Like, have you ever thought about just going in the direction of books, TV, film, anything like that? Yeah. Um, you know, I did write a book on game design. Uh, some right. Ago. Yes. Game design theory and practice. Yes, that's right. That's right. So I've I've had that kind of writing and I did just I have a chapter in a new book that came out. What's well, not that new came out. I guess it came out earlier this year. So that still counts as new, but it's called procedural storytelling and game design. Um, and I have a chapter in that about Church in the Darkness stuff. Uh, so I like that kind of writing. And yeah, I've, I've tinkered around with short story writing and novel writing. I have a novel that I'm not completely proud of, I guess. Um, but it's a tough thing to do 
in addition to the other, you know, uh, I guess on a few points, like I have the experience in game development, which means that's going to come to me more naturally just from the amount of times I've done it. Whereas when you're switching over to one of those other things, it's just a completely different set of muscles, um, which is fun to do as well. But, you know, I look at the end product and I'm like, hmm, okay. You know, they say never publish your first novel, right? So I've uh, heard that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's appealing to me and I think about going back to that at some point. But right now I've certainly got my hands full. I need to hurry through that burner novel so I can put a book out. You know what I mean? Hey, I mean, that's, that's what they say about games too. It's like, you know, the first you should really finish and ship a game as quickly as possible while you're, you know, young or starting out or whatever and, and just put it out, but no one will expect it to be good. You haven't done anything before. So you can just put it out and get some people to play it, see what the reaction is and just go through the whole cycle so that, you know, the next one you make, you'll have learned so much from that process. You'll just do so much better because of having had the experience. Same thing, same thing with a novel, but I think it applies to games too. I think I agree with that. The, the, sort of the version I heard of that was, um, you know, do do three jams or whatever, or polish, you know, three little projects. And then your third one needs to be something big that you're proud of that you can really put in front of people and, and sort of grow from that experience. And I, I think that, I mean, I've, I've been doing this kind of stuff for a little while myself, and I, it sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. I've never done a game jam. Um, they sort of came to be a thing after I was you know, already in the industry. Um, oh, true. So it's intriguing to me. I've always I've thought maybe I would enjoy doing that. It becomes trickier when I have, you know, wife and kids and saying, <laughs> hey, I'm going to have another weekend where you don't see me or something is is not uh, always going to go over well. But I think I would really enjoy doing it once uh, just to get a feel of it. But yeah, I think you know, as you're getting into things, doing a couple of jam games is a good idea. I would say take one of them and say, okay, we're going to see, you know, whichever one turns out the best work on that for three months or something like that. See how good you can get it and then release that or something. And then that's sort of going to be the learning experience of you can no longer say, Oh, it's just a jam game. No, I really worked on it, but also it's still your first game. So it's not going to be perfect. I do like that timeline concept and that, that floats around a little bit. I think, uh, they did that with, what was it? Surgeon simulator that started as a jam project. And they said, Mm -hmm. and these were people with, uh, I believe they were professionals with other jobs and other things to think about, but they said, let's take the next, you know, 60, 80 days, whatever it was. And let's, you know, let's put it out at the end of that time. And, uh, you know, here we are today. Everybody loves that game. I mean, in a, in a love hate kind of way. Yep. Yep. I mean, that's the great thing about jams is it's time boxed. So, you have to finish something in that amount of time. And then if you make enough of those, one of them will usually stand out as like, that was the one that I really liked. So let's double down on that. Right. Yeah. Um, you, for there's a metaphor about the, the two classes of people who, um, they're both pottery classes and one is told to make the perfect pot. And then the other class is told to make as many pots as possible. Right. And, the best pot is made by the class that makes as many pots as possible because they're not overthinking it. They're not, you know, belaboring this one to make it perfect because then you can just become too critical of your own work. Whereas a jam is great because you've got the time pressure and the, you know, need to get something done quickly. Yeah. Good, healthy restraints are just fantastic usually. <laughs> right. So you mentioned being a family person doing this on the indie side. Have you found like a decent work life balance or has it gotten better or worse? What do you say? Yeah, it's tricky. And I've, you know, I know other indies who do have their own set of struggles with this. But for me personally, I work at home. 
So anyone who's worked at home knows that, you know, sometimes the boundaries can be tricky, both in terms of, you know, whoever you're living with bothering you uh, when you don't want to be bothered, right? And you're trying to get something done or in the thick of it or whatever, <laughs> yeah. or there's, you know, your own ability to not stop working <laughs> at certain times because right. it's always right there. Uh, you know, I like, you know, when I worked at, at big AAA shops, I would miss dinner often. Um, not often, but it would, and it wouldn't be like I was working all night, but it would just be like dinner was at seven and I didn't get home till eight or something like that. Um, right. uh, with commutes and things like that. So it would be, I'd be there, but I'd miss dinner in this situation. I never missed dinner. Like, it's just <laughs> like, I, I can't avoid it. So it's like, I feel like the, the people in my life see me more, but they also see me working more and <laughs> maybe like, yeah. like the total times work is probably more because I, you know work before they get up or I work after they've gone to bed or whatnot. So it's, yeah, it's definitely always a struggle um, with anything you're doing where it can never be good enough. You're always going to accidentally push yourself too far in terms of how much you're working. Yeah, for sure. So uh, you mentioned you had done work with Microsoft, which is something I did not know about you. Even after having prepared for this call, you said you worked on Sunset Overdrive? When the global supply chain is strained, one essential transportation network continues to keep the economy connected 24-7. That network is freight rail. We're increasing hiring and capacity, all while investing more than $20 billion per year into our network to improve reliability every day. We never stop working to better serve our customers because freight rail works. Is it acceptable to go to Mickey D's just for a drink? <laughs> of course it is. But good luck leaving with just a drink. It's more than a drink. It's a Mickey D's drink. And right now, a small Minute Maid slushie is just $1.59. So all you have to do is choose a flavor, like the tropical mango or strawberry watermelon, and enjoy like it's meant to be enjoyed. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Yeah, so I was in the publishing group there. Oh, okay. um, worked with a bunch of different, you know, external developers. So gotcha. like Insomniac, Remedy, um, or Undead Labs, who made State of Decay, um, and, and other teams as well. Um, and there it would be more of a, depending on the project, it would be either just looking at their builds and giving them feedback as a designer would give feedback versus as a producer would give feedback or something. Um or like, you know, looking over milestones as they would come in with deliveries, or it would be, hey, um, this imp this feature is really important to Microsoft for some platform reason, or just trying to push things in a different way that, say, the Xbox can do that other systems can't, or whatever. And then, you know, we would often help out with little pieces of the game that way as well. So yeah, like on Sunset Overdrive, it was, I worked on their multiplayer mode, um, it's called Chaos Squad, I believe, in the end. It had a different name during development I won't tell you about. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that was a case of, like, the team was super focused on single player, which is the focus of that game. So it was only made sense. And I worked with uh, with them and then also with an external develop another external development studio to, like, get the first version of the multiplayer working because that was important for Microsoft identified multiplayer as being important to that project. Um, and they ended up taking it over and, and shipping it and making it their own in the end. Um, but sort of we went through a phase of prototyping and stuff where they were in the loop the whole time, the Insomniac people. But then, um, you know, I flew down to 
work with this this other um, studio that was doing stuff, and then we would play test it back at Microsoft and you know provide feedback and stuff like that because that's one of the advantages of a big publisher like Microsoft is they have play testing labs and you know a lot of resources that can go into usability and stuff like that. Right, and so you were their publishing guy, and you were kind of. I was one of one of several one of several. I mean, there was a quite there was a large team at Microsoft. Uh, oh, sure, yeah. That's not to say that you were the the primary guy, but right, but yeah. uh, one of of several. And they would basically assign you to different teams as they went through their projects. Yeah, I would based on need of like, hey, you know, for in that game there was another person who was sort of the primary designer on it, um, and he was worried about the single player and aligning with marketing and stuff like that. But then. It's like, hey, this multiplayer needs someone to to spend time on that. And I had come off of another project um, and had some time. So it was like maybe you could work on this for a few months um, and and ended up doing that. And I I didn't really know until recently how how readily uh, people in that position were basically put to work on different things. There's there's actually a good book about this by uh, Walt Williams. The book is uh, Significant Zeros. Significant mm-hmm. zero, sorry. And I, I'm, I regret to say I don't remember what publisher he worked with, but he did this as well. He would uh, be sort of assigned to a, a project with a group and he, he would describe, you know, like I would spend days or weeks, you know, taking certain screenshots they needed for, you know, uh, marketing stuff or stuff like that. I, you know, you really get your get your hands dirty with whatever. It's It almost turns into like sort of production work, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, no, it definitely does. And all depends on the situation, like. For a feature I was working on at one point, we needed a bunch of gameplay footage recorded that showed different things that would be used to mock up a feature, basically. And so, yeah, I ended up recording that footage and and working with an editor on on putting together these clips. And then we sent it over to them and they approved it. And then we put it into this demo that we made uh, just to show off how something would work, which I believe was cut in the end. But, (laughs) you know, it was still one of those like just because something's cut doesn't always mean it was completely wasted work right it informed the next thing you did that was the right version of it um so that we would try to you know when a team was really busy working on something and didn't have time to think about the multiplayer at the time we would be able to help get a jump start on that basically to hopefully save them time later on but yeah i know walt williams worked on he was probably talking about working at 2k on on because he was on spec ops the line most famously and then right. worked on a bunch of other stuff and in that team and yeah it's, it's similar similar publishing operation there now now that you mentioned that i recall that he was talking about uh at that time helping work on uh, bioshock yeah so there yeah. you go same group yeah so uh that that is fascinating work and what a healthy mindset to look at things that that do get cut <laughs> as things that were still productive i think that's uh fantastic yeah i had an argument once i wrote a post-mortem of a game and listed like total development time, you know, 13 months or something like that. And the owner of the studio got really mad at me and said, we only worked on that for nine months. What are you talking about? Because he wanted to say, hey, we work quickly. Sure. And I said, well, no, you were working on it for 13 months. What are you talking about? And he's like, well, we threw out the first four months. Oh, no. <laughs> that doesn't reset the clock, unfortunately. <laughs> no, yeah. we still, and that stuff we threw out was still useful um, to the thing we eventually did do. Right. you got to go down some dead ends sometimes to get to the right solution. Yeah. So tell me about uh, the experience of writing uh, game design theory and practice. You got to do that. Now, it looked like you did that before The Suffering came out. Is that right? Yeah. The the first edition came out before The Suffering, and then the second edition came out after The Suffering. Okay. So what led to that? 
Yeah, I had um, written a postmortem. I wrote a bunch of different postmortems for Game Developer Magazine back when that was a print uh, thing. Right. Uh, now most of that content is on Gamma Sutra somewhere, but um, so I had written a postmortem for one of my earlier games for that, and a book publisher had seen it and said, "Hey, I'm looking for people to write more books for my book line, and would you like to?" And this would have been like late '90s, and there weren't any game design books out at the time, um, and I was, you know, most interested in game design, and I had loved one of my sort of game design heroes was chris crawford who in the 80s made games like balance of power and eastern front and um a variety of other games that went from war games to more experimental games Mm -hmm. um but he had written a book i think called the art of game design um in 1984 or something like that and it was long out of print and i remember at the time this is pre you know ubiquity of the internet you you could email him and he would sell you a copy for 20 bucks, which was a photocopy of it <laughs> uh, or a photocopy of his manuscript. So I had purchased it from him that way because it was no – it had originally been for sale in stores and stuff. But you know it was 10 years later, so it was out of print. Yeah. Um, and then I had gotten that and thought, well, this is so useful because getting – you know I'm someone who likes to read. So getting into game development at the time, there weren't schools. There weren't – you know all the books you would get would be about programming. Yeah. Which only makes sense because that's more like you, you need real instruction in that. Whereas game design, people are like, I can make this up as I go along, which is true <laughs> to some extent. And some good games have come about that way. If people with no, no, haven't read a book or read anything and they just make the thing and it's cool. Yeah. Um, but I'm someone who like to learn, how do you do this? Or like, what does a design document look like? I've heard of that, but I have no idea. Right. So when the, when I was approached about writing a book, they said, Hey, what do you want to what do you want to write about? And it's like I want to do a design book, and they're like, "Oh, okay. Well, how much code is it going to have? No code. What? <laughs> oh, so there was a little bit of discussion, but they were open to the idea and had a bunch of different books going. So this was just one of them. Um, and so yeah, while I was working on it, um, another game design book came out called Game Architecture and Design, which was one of the first modern game design books. Um, and that was again, a mix of sort of production stuff with design with even some programming, I think it was in it. Um, and then my book came out at the same time that Bob Bates's design book came out and I didn't know Bob Bates at the time. He's a friend now, but he wasn't then. Um, <laughs> And so I was, you know, I did not have that much experience. I felt I had like five, six years experience or something, uh, which didn't feel like a lot to write a book. Uh, but uh, it was still like just going through, here's my process. Here's all the things I've learned from other designers or other scraps of documents I've written. I have found on the Internet from people who talked about their process sort of synthesized into a book and then also included. And that was why. I included the interviews with even more established game designers and and those were, you know, long in depth, like let's talk about each one of your game sorts of, of things. Right. There are fantastic interviews in the book. Like, um, let's see, you've got Jordan Mechner, which is a big deal uh, of uh, Prince of Persia fame and, and uh, Will Wright, Sid Meier. Yep. All stars are in, in the book. So, I mean, that if you look at it in that light, I mean, and you've got fantastic stuff in here as well as I've had the opportunity to, to sort of look it over. I would put this. I don't I don't know of, of any other books I'd put above this for design, actually, even today. Well, that's very nice of you to say. <laughs> but yeah, I'm a big fan of – I mean now in the era of podcasting and, and the internet that just needs to be filled up with content at all times, you've got more long-form interviews with designers and stuff that where they talk about their process. But this was really 
there wasn't a lot of this at the time. And I remember back then I loved Next Generation magazine, mm-hmm. uh, which was sort of like the version of Edge magazine, but for the U.S., uh, Edge being a European magazine that was still a consumer oriented, like you're a gamer, you pick this up, but just with like a lot more behind the scenes stuff in it. And I just right. love that because they would have like, oh, here's a five page interview with Eugene Jarvis talking about uh, the San Francisco Rush game or whatever that he just worked on. And I would just love those and wanted to get those, but even longer, <laughs> which is yeah. what ended up going into the interviews in the book. And I remember like after I did the one with Steve Moretzky. Um, who was a old Infocom guy. He, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say old, that's rude, but, uh, <laughs> he was much younger then too, weren't we all? But, uh, he said, I've never done an interview this long. This is kind of cool. And I was like, yeah, that's good. I'm glad you think so. Right. Um, <laughs> and I remember when I talked to like Will Wright or something that went and Will Wright can talk too, just at length about things. Um, he would like say, now I'm going to need to go to the bathroom, but let's get back to this after. Okay. So, you know, we would go and, and those were just like absolutely, you know, highlight of my career doing those, particularly at that time, doing those interviews. Um, and then I got, I hadn't met any of those people in person and I think I've met everybody in there now, which is kind of cool too, of like, Hey, we did that interview a while ago. The one I probably haven't spent, the one I've spent the least amount of time with are probably Sid Meier or Will Wright, but, uh, Everybody else I've gotten to see at a conference or something like that, have drinks with uh, or, or become friends with even. So um, that's been very cool. Yeah, it, it has – even doing uh, this podcast has just been a fantastic way to sort of um, – if if not you know what you would call meet people, it, it's certainly a way to sort of get a little bit familiar with people so that, yeah, when when people cross paths at these things, it's nice to be able to say, hey, you know, good to, good to finally see you and not feel like you're just approaching that person randomly, you know? <laughs> Right. And the book, too, just as one other anecdote, um, you know, we were talking about how people will find your game and it won't be the game they thought it was. So they'll be disappointed. So the first review that showed up on Amazon of the book hated the book because he said, I bought this game book to learn how to program games. There's no programming in here. You know, like so mad. It's like, I would give this zero stars. This is just a bunch of chit chat. I'm like, well, okay. I don't think we promised you programming. But again, he was someone who was conflating game design with game programming. Cause what else would there be sort of like the word developer can mean programmer or something like that, depending on the context. Yeah. Um, I guess for an early on design book, I, I guess I can, there's no, there's no good reason to be rude about it, but I, I guess I can understand how that probably happened at that time. You'd, you'd really never see that now. I don't think. Well, uh, you know, you'd be surprised. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's true. I, I find it weird. The behavior of this is not what I was expecting at all. Let me leave a negative review versus <laughs> this was not what I was expecting at all. Clearly it's for somebody else versus like, I really wanted to like this, but these things were broken or whatever. Like that's fair. And all, you know, all, all reviews are fair criticism, right? You're putting your stuff out there. That's what's going to happen. But it is a weird thing to say. I thought this was something else, so I'm going to be mad about that versus trying to understand the thing that it is or just leaving no comment, you know? <laughs> right, right. It, it would be nice to think that person at least learned something before completely discarding the work, but... <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? I mean, are you anything like me that, you know, obviously you keep up with the new technology and as engines change and, and different programming uh, paradigms come about, do you sort of dislike 
doing the new version of learning, which is like you go to YouTube or you crack open, you know, whatever thing. I, I'm a book guy. I like to have a book in front of me. It's how I came up, you know, learning programming when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14. Uh, or, or have you sort of embraced it? Yeah, I mean, it really depends. Um, I have gotten... I do think your brain processes material differently when it's reading versus when a video is just coming at you because the video just keeps coming no matter what you do unless you pause it. Like right. You have to opt into stopping it, whereas reading, you kind of have to opt in to continue to reading it. So there is something different cognitively going on there. I'm, I'm fairly certain, though I'm not a cognitive psychologist or anything. But for me, like I have really like looking at particularly like Unity tutorials and stuff that are in video form, they can be great because it's like shows you exactly where the button is or the weird thing that might be hard to describe in text or something like that because it is so specific. Then the 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 challenge can be later you want to go back and look something up like where was the part about this thing that I don't remember how to do anymore you know and you've watched 10 hours of these videos at that point or something and you like where was it and just like searching through the yeah. whole thing could be exhausting it's like which part of this video? you're trying to jump between the frames and it's like oh no I'm not finding it and it's just whereas you know a book you can like put a bookmark in it or it's just easier to flip through to find something it feels like um, or or a text file as well exactly you can search obviously so, uh, yeah, pluses and minuses for sure. It's true that as uh, development has shifted a little bit more toward, uh, well, like you mentioned, Unity, it's a system of other people's menus that you don't know as much about this as you knew about maybe uh, C-sharp scripting itself. And the mm -hmm. video is very helpful in telling you where in version uh, 2018 point, whatever, right. uh, where that actual button is. And then once they start scripting, now I wish I was back to the books because I – I really dislike watching coding videos, but you're right. Unity videos are great. Yeah. I haven't watched that many coding videos. The ones that were in, um, and it was the way I did it was I literally did type along with the whole thing to enter all of the code myself for it. Right. And I just feel like it's just like when you're taking notes in class or something like that, you can think, well, this is all in the textbooks. I don't need to write it down. But the, the act of writing it down helps you remember it better than just just passively observing the thing. Right. Um, so uh, like that, you know, when I did it, I did code right along with it to see what they're doing. And then I would, you know, pause the video and try my own stuff for a while and then go back to the video or something. Um, so that, that, that was useful. But yeah, certainly when I, when I learned it back in the day, it was, it was books and, uh, you know, instructors and other people I knew who I could ask questions of that was sort of the most useful thing. And that's always tricky like the great thing about Unity is, you know, it has a lot of online knowledge of people who have asked the same question you're asking and someone else has answered it for them. And, you know, that was something that didn't exist at all 20 years ago when I was first starting out. But then you get into the hairier problems where the person has answered it, but they're actually wrong, <laughs> you know, or or someone posted the same question you have a year ago and there's still no answer about it, you know, and it's like, oh, we got run into a real one. And I always feel it's a bummer when the replacement for adequate documentation is a forum, right? Because oh, yeah. It, it isn't as complete um, inherently and it can be it'll help you find the easy stuff but then the hard stuff you're often hosed on yeah so let's jump back to your career a little bit before we uh, run out of time um, how did you like working at Midway yeah that was a interesting company 
when I was there because they, their history was in coin-op originally, and that right. was where they had had their massive success, and pinball as well. And so they had been most successful in that era, say, of the like 90s when Mortal Kombat was big and narc and and just where they and they had done so well at coin op that they owned the market practically um and they had bought atari coin op as well so that was sort of the same company even though they really were kept as separate studios so they would be competition for each other yeah um and then it was tricky to switch from the mindset of what works in coin op to what works for a home system like a lot of the earliest versions were literally the coin op game now in your home which is a very different experience. Coin-op is designed to be a short play time, uh, often ramps up difficulty very quickly, and then you just keep putting quarters in. Um, and then at home, people want something that's a little longer lasting. In certain games, like Mortal Kombat, obviously is transferred to the home uh, better than a lot of those other games did. Um, they, you know, when when we were working with them publishing The Suffering and then Beyond The Suffering when I was working for Midway directly, there was still a lot of that like growing pains into this different space a bit. Yeah. Um, but also it was great that it was a company where they had a lot of legendary old timers there, quote, quote unquote, old timers sure. um, who had done these games that I loved and was very impressed by and were now, you know, trying to do something in a different space that could be very cool. And it'd be like, oh, my God, you did the art for Spy Hunter and now you're working on Ballers. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it was, it was fun in that way. And just certainly going to that building in Chicago, there was like so much history in there of just like, you know, here's a, here's some artwork from the side of this game from years ago, or here's this other thing. Um, and it was they, cause they had been in the same building for a long time. Yeah. And, and their, their marketing was so wacky and fun to read about. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, I, I would strongly suggest anyone who missed this part of, History, uh, when the suffering was coming out, I just read about this last night. Midway took a bunch of uh, game journalists to a real prison that was allegedly haunted. And that's where they did mm -hmm. sort of the gameplay reveal of uh, <clears throat> some of the game. And uh, that was such a fantastic thing to read those journalists uh, stories they wrote afterward. Yeah, I was on that. I was on that trip. Um, oh, fantastic. They sent, I think I might have been the only person from Surreal who went. Maybe one other person went. But then a bunch of people from the publisher went. And yeah, and then you had people like IGN and GameStop and yeah. or GameSpot and, and a variety of places. I'd love afterwards you should send me a link to what you were reading because I'd love to yeah. remember some of that myself. But it was it was I mean, for me, this was an amazing prison. <laughs> like I because as someone who was into, you know, through the part of the through developing the suffering, and this has happened on many games, I get really into the subject matter yeah. um and my research and then just want to know more and more and more about it. And here I was in this real old, you know, turn of the century style prison that had been modified over time and it had this really depressing chapel and it had like weird like striped paint that would tell you where to go and then there were cells that had all this interesting graffiti in them from previous inmates and it was a um the prison had been shut for a while and then the other interesting thing was it was in this tiny west virginia town um that it was the main employer for a long time because often you know when you have a prison out in the and the rural areas, it becomes the main source of jobs in the area. Sure. And then it hit, and then it had closed. So now the main source of jobs was a Pepsi plant that was down the road. And so Coke was illegal in town, seemingly like you, like <laughs> every soda machine was Pepsi. Yeah. Um, 
but and then it was just these really is really nice people there and you know i'm from rural area myself originally so that was fun and i remember we went to like the only coffee shop in town that you know and this would have been mid 2000s i'm sure they have three coffee shops now or something but <laughs> um but and they told us that their their kids were really into halo and that they played land parties upstairs where everyone brought their xbox over to the coffee shop after it was closed at night and would play halo for sleepovers and stuff <laughs> like that i think one of the kids of the owners uh did that or so it's always like interesting to hear like even here we are in the middle of nowhere prison town and they still love their video games there too so it was just a great like we were there for three days or something like that like between setup and and stuff and then having the journalists and showing them the game getting them to play it there was was a lot of fun fantastic and i i look at that differently now because i've i've done just a, a touch of professional game journalism and i was just endlessly entertained by that yeah no and it's it was very high concept because you know so many of those press junkets are now in las vegas or something like that you know which is less uh this had a real funkiness to it. And, yeah. and that was true of that era of Midway was was doing crazy things like that. Yeah. Were, uh, were you in on the talks about turning the suffering into a movie at some point? Yeah. No, I was uh, – I talked to – at the time, Sumner Redstone owned Paramount and and he also – became a majority shareholder in Midway around the same time. So they weren't the same company as Paramount, but he owned both of them. So they were kind of gotcha. the same thing. So I think he said, hey, let's option some of these Midway properties into games. And The Suffering seemed to be the one that was the most ready to go as a movie of any of them because it was a pretty high concept that would work in both. Like so often a game's high concept is you're a space marine. It's like aliens or something, you know, <laughs> and it's like, well, we've got aliens. We've got those movies already. We don't need more of those. Whereas this was haunted prison uh to put it in its simplest form was like oh i haven't seen that before people like horror movies okay maybe we could do that yeah. so it did go into development and i talked to an executive at at mtv who came by and we talked on the phone a bunch of times about the game and it never really went anywhere years later i met a writer at a book convention who was you know selling his novel about something and we were just talking and said i'd worked on this stuff he's like oh i pitched for writing a screenplay for that this oh wow it's like oh really and he had said he wanted to make it into an indian barrel ground or something and i was like i'm so glad you didn't write this <laughs> uh, so i'm like that's a that plot's been done a few times anyway so uh, uh it was it was fun that that happened though i'm not surprised it didn't get made um yeah. but it's cool to have something that I guess I guess it's one of those honor just to be nominated. Sort of yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like and if they made the movie probably would have been bad. So this is kind of the best of both worlds. It's like someone liked it enough to do that, but they didn't actually ruin it. So, yeah. And uh, speaking of unfortunate cancellations, uh, I was sorry to hear you almost got to influence the Rainbow Six series. And then yeah. uh, really, it's it, it didn't sound like anything to do with really anyone, but that they just didn't proceed with the project. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you see what they eventually shipped was was Siege and right. uh, which is a great game by all accounts. I haven't played it, unfortunately. That's sort of been on my list for a while. I'll probably get to it at some point. But um, that game. Yeah, they ended up something and we were making something very different than that in that it was very single player and, and story and stuff. And it was 
very much like a Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Like we're going to have multiplayer, but we're going to have this really amazing campaign as well. Uh, and obviously the Rainbow Six games have been known for having both going all the way back. And yeah, at some point things happened, things shifted around, and then there was no more Patriots, and then Siege came out some years later. So Yeah, the, the vibe I got from what I knew about Patriots was it almost reminded me more of um, Freedom Fighters. Did you ever play that? Sure. Yeah. I yeah. loved that game. And I thought yeah. it's it really is a shame there's not more of that kind of thing. And this sound this seemed like it might have scratched that itch just a little bit. And uh that we're we're not we're not any better off that the game didn't come out. <laughs> yeah, no, we were really proud of what we'd done, but uh you know, you can't win them all, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, it was and it was quite a bit darker than freedom fighters it was a really dark story and it had moral choices in it too where you were deciding you know do i do i do this thing or this thing and they're both bad you know and that kind of stuff um that was again going to keep up with things i've done in my other games um but alas not to be i i would say players who do want to check out some some good dynamic storytelling the church in the darkness is available uh just about every what all systems can you play it on yeah, um, yeah, it's it's uh, on Steam and PC and Mac, and then also on other PC storefronts like GOG and Humble and stuff. But then you can uh, also pick it up on the console of your choice, so PS4, Xbox, and Switch. Very cool. Do you have any uh, future plans for it, or is it just mostly support and uh, on to the next thing? Yeah, no, right now, definitely in support mode, um, you know, and listening to some of the feedback we got and stuff like that. So I've been... Um, tuning controls things most recently we've done four patches so far i think that have improved like randomization between playthroughs and um because it is designed to be replayed and i want people to get new stuff each time they play so we added systems that do that you know we added some quality of life stuff like volume sliders that pc players really want yeah uh, and i i was a little I, I sort of knew we should do them, but it just got prioritized out. But then having shipped everybody, that was one of the top requests. So uh, we got to that right away and then have been doing some of the other quality of life stuff since then. Very cool. So uh, for folks interested, where can people follow you? Sure. I'm on uh, Twitter. It's pretty good at Richard Rouse III for third. Yeah. Um, that's probably the best place. We've also got the paranoidproductions.com. Uh, has you know a bunch of the games I've worked on, and then it has a page about the Church in the Darkness, and you can get to the mailing list that we have on there too. So I recommend either the mailing list or Twitter are pretty good. I also have a blog at richardrouse.com where I post not that often about <laughs> mostly Church in the Darkness development stuff so far, but also if I'm going to be speaking at a conference like GDC or uh, I'm going to be at this uh, GIC conference in Poland in late October. Um, so I usually post on there about, you know, upcoming speaking or slides and stuff like that afterwards. Very cool. Well, this has been awesome. I appreciate you coming on and, uh, come back and talk to us about the next project too. Will do. Thank you, sir. Got it. I want to thank Richard one more time. He was a great guest. Go check out The Church in the Darkness, available now. Check out his book, 
game design theory and practice because it's fantastic and has a lot of great stuff in it. If you like Game Dev Breakdown, we would love to have you subscribe, and you can do that anywhere. You can check out show notes at CodeWritePlay.com. You can check out our Patreon group at Patreon.com slash CodeWritePlay. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know if you're enjoying the show. Uh, leave a review if you think about it, and feel free to share it with a friend. We're working on new fun stuff all the time, and we'll be back with some more later this week. So take care. Have a good one. Bye.